This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. All right, guys, I've got Tyler Kirkpatrick on the show. Tyler is one of the most underfollowed Twitter users out there. And when it comes to finding value stocks and particularly XUS, so in Tyler's case, he finds a ton of value in Canadian stocks. You can find him on Twitter at CDN Value Stocks, and he runs a really interesting Canadian value investing blog, which we'll get to as well. So uh, I wanted to have Tyler on for a while and shout out to Nick uh, for the recommendation. And uh, I've got a couple questions from Nick. Um, I know you two are mutual follows and Nick is someone I, I, I enjoy following. So uh, Tyler, you have crushed, I guess, the uh, S&P benchmark over the last five years. So for people that are listening uh, that maybe don't know who you are. I mean, we'll start with the fact that at least on your website from 2016 to 2020, you've annualized about 19.19%, uh, which beats your internal target of 15% per year. And you're, you know, beating um, the S&P by I think like 53%. So, you know, who are you and how did you get started investing? Hey, thanks, Brandon, for, for having me on. So to, to answer who I am, you know, I'm just, I'm just a guy that uh, likes investing. I, uh, somewhere along the lines, I fell in love with, you know, the, the Warren Buffett story or, and, and got interested in companies, business, et cetera. And, and found that, you know, if I had to have a hobby, I might as well, you know, be investing my retirement savings. Um, and then ended up, you know, taking that further, starting a blog, getting to meet all sorts of people, got, got even deeper into it. Um, so, so, you know, my day jobs, uh, I'm a production manager at a, um, waste container company. So we make semi underground garbage containers. So, so if you're starting a real, uh, real estate development, you don't want a dumpster. We, we make, you know, an alternative. Um, so day to day, I do nothing. I, I write, um, you know, safety policies. I run a forklift. I wear steel toe boots to work. Um, nothing at all to do with this. And then, you know, I get home at the end of the day, this is what I like doing. I like, I like, you know, running screeners, searching for, for underfollowed companies that, you know, present a, a high chance of a, you know, high risk reward return. Got it. And in your first ever blog post, you described yourself as a mild mannered man who spends a lot of time thinking about stocks. And by night, you're a mild mannered man who thinks even more about stocks. Um, <laughs> What I also thought was interesting is you had another blog post where I think it was your mother found some notes that you had from a book called The Wealthy Barber at eight years old. So even at eight years old, you were thinking about money, thinking about investing. Walk us through how you ended up reading this book at eight, at, at the age of eight. So I, I guess I was just a nerdy little kid. Um, I have no idea. So I got... You know, I won the ovarian lottery. I had, you know, great parents. And I think, you know, any, any Canadian family around in the nineties probably had the wealthy barber. 
uh, you know, it was a roaring success of a personal finance book in, in Canada. And my mother happened to have it. I'm sure that one day I was, you know, boring her or bugging her to, you know, you know, play Batman, whatever. And she, you know, said, Tyler, shut up, read this book, expecting me to run off, not read it. For some reason I read it. And the, the idea of, you know, compound interest, you know, a mild mannered barber becoming a wealthy guy, something, something, you know, stuck, which I'm really lucky it did because, you know, ended up first job I ever had, you know, worked a couple months in the grocery store. That didn't work out, worked road construction. I was saving, saving money off my paycheck, which I know from talking to people in high school, not a lot of people were. So I got, got a really lucky start, you know, all because all my mom happened to have a book lying around. That's awesome. So kind of walk us through the premise of the book, because I've never heard of it until I started researching for the podcast. So it's, uh, you know, uh, the author's David Chilton, who was on Dragon's Den, which is our version of Shark, Shark Tank. Uh, so when he was fairly young, he wrote a, you know, it's written in a narrative style of, you know, a couple of guys go into, go into a bar, uh, barbershop, talk to this barber and, you know, they're having money problems. They end up talking to this, you know, barber expecting him just to, to hear them out. He ends up telling them all these stories of, you know, you need to be donating or, you know, contributing to your retirement savings. You need to be saving 10% off your paycheck before you pay any expenses, uh, invest in a mutual fund that'll, you know, return 15% or whatever he said in the eighties. Um, so it's written like that. And it's, it's just, you know, all the, the timeless personal finance lessons you can get from, from lots of sources, but it, Something about the the style it was written in, I guess, stuck stuck with Canadians. Got it. Yeah, it almost reminds me of the um, shoot. It's it's that it's that one book about the Babylonian. I think it's like the the uh, rich man in Babylon. Yeah. Yeah, I read I read that one. That was a, that was that was a quick read. Now, I feel like it's kind of got that same sort of mantra to it. Yeah. So, you're reading this book, Wealthy Barber. You're starting to think about stocks. Obviously, at an early age, you're saving some money in high school. When did you dip your toes into actually buying stock on the on on the market? So I th- I think, and or at least I was led to believe this when I was in high school that you can't open a brokerage account till you're 18. Now now you look on Reddit and these kids are 12 years old and buying stocks. I don't know how it's how it's. Allowed. They're buying options too. That's a crazy part. <laughs> but. Uh, but I was told I had to wait till I was 18. I, I guess, you know, thankfully someone was looking out for my best interests. So the day I turned 18, went into TD Bank, signed the account uh, account forms. And a little while later, you know, once, three weeks later, once the account set up, uh, my only goal was to, to have enough BC stocks so of Bell Canada that the dividends I received from it would pay my phone bill, which was, I don't know, $25 a month or something. So right. the entirety of my you know, thesis that I call it now that I have no idea what that word meant when I was younger was, you know, it's going to take X number of shares to pay me 75 cent or $75 a quarter. I want to buy that many shares. Got it. Luckily, luckily I've, I've moved a little bit past that, but not, not as far as I'd like. Yeah. So, you know, you were chasing these early dividend stocks, which is yeah. one of the most attractive things, right? It's you're a part owner of a business and every quarter you just get a check in the mail and it's like, oh, okay, sweet. I can use this to pay my phone bill. <laughs> not, not many people at 18 were probably thinking along those same lines. No, I, I, I don't think, I don't think I ever, I ever brought that up to anyone, but I don't think they would have understood. 
So after after BCE and looking at dividend stocks, um, I assume that you stay in Canada um, for some of these some of these investments. What initially, or you know, I've, obviously, I think what attracted you to Canada is that are you from Canada? Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So I'm yeah. located, you know, a couple hours uh, north of Toronto. Right. So besides the local um, attraction, what else did you find attractive about the Canadian market? Because, you know, obviously you can invest in U.S. stocks, you can invest in, in, in all these other countries, but what specifically about Canada piqued your interest? Early on, I think I realized that there was no, there was no way I was ever going to be managing enough money to, to ever exhaust my opportunities in Canada. So, you know, I'm not investing... Uh, one billion, two billion, three billion dollars, especially when I was starting. You know, we're talking small amounts of money. So, I I thought, you know, there's good. There are Canadian stocks out there with enough liquidity that I can get whatever return I want, which I've decided on fifteen percent. Um, I'm not going to move past that. So, as long as I can find those opportunities in Canada, where I understand somewhat the legal system, I understand our accounting. I can drive two hours and find, you know, a building that I, you know, have a piece of ownership in. Um, as long as I have, you know, those small little advantages in Canada, I don't have to stray stray outside. Now, you know, I do do have some invested outside of of Canada with mutual funds, index funds, etc. Because I realize, you know, if a lot of home country bias here, if anything ever went wrong with Canada. I would be screwed. I'd be screwed anyway because I live here. Yeah. But I might, well, I might as well have some invested in the S&P 500 and, and whatnot. I just, I can't spend, I don't have enough time in a day to, to spend looking at those companies when there's so many great companies here at home. Hmm. Now, when people think of Canadian stocks, myself included up until about, I guess, a year and a half, two years ago, they mostly think, oh, it's just a bunch of junior gold and silver miners that are for more or less of a better term, pump and dump schemes. This obviously isn't the case. There's a ton, over the last year especially, there's a ton of really interesting Canadian tech stocks that both A, are growing really fast, and B, actually generate some serious cash flow. Um, that said, what are some of the biggest mi- misconceptions about investing in Canadian stocks? So so that's the the pump and dump you know, we're all gold mine stocks, you know, Briex and stuff. That's not just a, an American misconception. That's, that's all over Canada too. I, I've had this discussion with people who said, you know, you can't, you can't beat us returns with Canadian stocks. Um, everyone seems to think it, and it's, you know, it's not, it's based on fact. Um, but you know, we're, we're not that different of a, a legal system. We have a lot more government involvement from, from what I've seen. You know, that gives us some some really interesting, you know, protected oligopolies. Um, you know, our banks, there's only about six of them. They're all protected by the government. The government will backstop us. You know, our government protects our housing market. You know, there's there's a lot more, a lot more of that. Um, yeah, regu- a little bit more regulation. It seems like we're we're more, you know, uh, protective of, of the Canadian identity. Um, but the biggest misconception I'd probably say is, you know, it's not that different of a market. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no need to be, to think that because a company's based in Quebec that, you know, it's fraudulent or that there's nothing in their mind or whatever. It's, you know, chances are it's a decent company. 
Right, right, exactly. And kind of pulling at that thread a little bit, you said that there's been people that have claimed, oh, you can't beat U.S. returns investing only in Canadian stocks, which you've obviously bucked that trend, delivering you know 19, a little bit over 19% per year for the last five years. What advantage do you think you have over other investors, specifically in Canada, that allow you to generate, at least over the last five years, those above average returns? So I think... I was thinking about this a little bit, and I'm not sure I have you know any particular advantage regarding all of Canada, but yeah. the stocks I've picked, I'm I'm almost positive that I'm in the top five percent of people who spend time thinking about them. Mm. Whereas if I was investing in you know Apple, there's no way I'm thinking about that more than you know the the research analysts that cover Apple. Whereas you know Dream Unlimited, one of the companies we're going to talk about. I'm positive that there might be four people that think about Dream Unlimited more than I do. And there's, yeah, I think there's something to be said for that, that, you know, I'm looking up, I'm looking up the news about their properties. I'm, I'm doing this. That gives me, you know, a, a real close view of that company that not a lot of people have. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a very good point. And it's something that I've also thought about too, where I listened, I think it was Gavin Baker's first podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, where, you know, he basically said, you have to be in the top, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but he said, you have to be in like the top 1% of knowledge about businesses or like he, he has to think that he's in the top 1% of knowledge and understanding about a business before he invests. And part of me has always kind of not understood the need for that because there's one part of my brain that says, if you do like the minimal effort needed to get a basically to get like the foundational understanding of a business, you can still do really well. And I always wonder how much more alpha you can create by doing all of that incremental work after you get that basic understanding. But it sounds like at least in Canada, maybe in the spaces you fish, like doing that incremental work is the result or, or those, 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 returns that 90% is the result of all of that incremental work besides the basic level understanding. And I'd, I'd mostly agree with you. There's, you know, I've bought stocks based on, you know, very little information. Um, probably, you know, that ba that base research, you know, I find out it's a good company, you know, customers like their product, et cetera. And, you know, those, those kind of companies have contributed to, to my returns as well, but as far as, you know, an advantage, I don't think you need to be thinking about a company, you know, six hours a day, but I do think, you know, if you find an opportunity that, you know, you, you can devote that time to it. And if you're lucky enough that it's valued appropriately, that that's a good recipe. Yeah. And it was, you know, even, even, even going off that Scott Miller said in an interview once that, you know, if you're if you're thinking about stocks like while you're in the shower, just thinking about you know your businesses while you're while you're on a walk or something like that, you're going to have an advantage. And that I agree with because I think if you if you find a stock that you can't stop thinking about, I think that's a great indicator that you're onto something interesting. Yeah, I I fully agree. It's one of the uh, uh, one of the things that you know not working in the you know finance industry, not getting to do this eight hours a day paid, and then going home and doing it as a hobby. It's one of the things I think I miss out on is, you know, you're able to find a, not necessarily you, but people are able to find a company you know, at work, spend all that time working about it. And then if it digs into your brain there, 
you get it on the walk and you get it in the shower. I have to devote, you know, time at home, time outside of work to find those. But, and I think, but that also makes it, you know, it maybe attaches me a bit more, which mm-hmm. not necessarily a good thing, but yeah. if I find something I enjoyed, you know, I enjoy spending my time this way, a company like that, it, I don't even know what it would be. It, it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. And one of the companies that I would bet that you thought a lot about is integrated asset management, which again, going back to your blog, I think you've mentioned is one of your best investments. You did a you 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 did a QA. I think it was over Twitter you did the QA, but then you reposted it on the blog and someone asked you this question. And so I wanted to dig deeper into why integrated asset management was one of your best ideas. And so if we could just go from soup to nuts, how you found it and then how you did the diligence process and why it ended up being one of your best investments. Yeah. So it was uh, um, one one of the best things about writing my blog is I have so many smart people offer me ideas or tell me, you know, you should like this, or they've noticed what I've written about and they say, you will like this company. And luckily I had a reader who who saw something I said or noticed, I think he noticed I didn't have very many financials in my portfolio. He said, take a look at integrated asset management. I looked at it and I've always loved the, the asset management business. And here was this little one. It was, I think it was $2 billion asset under management. Um, It was trading at six times, EV over EBITDA. It was, you know, half the market cap was in cash. It was, it was just very well valued. And it was a little misunderstood because they just sold a money losing operation that they only earned fees on invested capital versus, you know, out total assets under management. So people didn't, I don't think people really understood why their revenue wasn't what you'd think it would be. So, so the numbers were a little wonky and I, you know, the whole th- idea was, this was a good business. It's worth more than six times EV over EBITDA. And you know, they're going to invest capital. The numbers are going to start looking better. After that, they're probably going to start a fundraising round. Asset under management goes up a little bit more news, the names in the names in the news. And you know, people are going to take notice of it. So I invested on that. I I bought most of my position around $1.30. Um and over, over the next two years, it did very well. Uh, I think I was up 60, 70% or something. Plus it paid a, a pretty generous dividend. And then it got taken out by Fiera Capital in 2019 at two, 258. Mm-hmm. So based on that, it was almost a double within two years and it was a big position. So I thought that's, that's a pretty good investment. Yeah. But the, the thing was, the deal was structured such that integrated was going to pay out a special dividend if it had a cash balance over $10 million at the time of closing. At the time they had $17 million. So I thought there's obviously wow. a special dividend coming yeah. and they, there was CVRs attached to the performance fees of a couple of the real estate funds. So what's a so, CVR real quick? Uh, contingent value rate, I believe. So, okay. so it was, the whole thing was, I got a little piece of paper that said, if this fund ends up paying performance fees, we're going to pay our employees, our bonuses, we're going to pay our taxes. You, even though you don't own the company anymore, because it was acquired, you still have a piece of that, uh, those performance fees. So at that time it was, you know, no one really knew what it was. They, they published what those 
fees were. So you get get an idea, but it was down the road and no one knew what the bonuses were gonna be, what the taxes were gonna be. But it was obviously, obvious there was value there. Before the deal, so they were getting taken out at 258, it settled around 255 uh, for a, you know, a spread. The dividend, the special dividend, I figured it's going to be, I did the math, I figured out how much their cash flow from operations was be. I took a guess at severance. I took a guess at um, you know, what the bonuses would be for the other funds being realized. I said the dividend's going to be at least four cents. It ended up being eight cents. And the wow. CVRs, I did a little bit of math. I thought those are going to be 19 cents. Maybe they pay out in 2024. Discount that back. I thought maybe that's worth 14 cents. Call it 10. So I thought I was investing at 255 and I was going to get you know, something along the lines of $2.70 in a very low risk deal. This was a company hardly anyone knew existed being acquired by another Canadian company. There was no you know, competition risks or anything. I, I saw very little reason the deal would fall through. So, so I ended up averaging up, I guess, and buying a lot more stock at 255. I'd made, I'd made a great return on the initial investment. I ended up nailing the, the deal because the special dividend ended up being twice what I thought. And just this past summer, I ended up getting paid our first payment from the CVR. It was 25 cents, way more than anyone was expecting. Wow. Way sooner than anyone was, was expecting. So I think it, somewhere along the lines of you know, $2.80 in a low risk deal that I was able to buy at $2.55. And, and somewhere down the line, I have more, you know, more fees coming in from that CVR. It's, it's not done paying out. So it's just, you know, it's the gift that keeps on giving. That's awesome. I mean, I know like the inherent advantages of investing. I mean, the asset, the asset management business is awesome. Um, you know, if, if, even, even if you haven't been a part of an asset management business, you can just, you know, go through like a KKR slide deck and understand how great that business is. One question I have for you though, is you said that you bought at a higher price. You basically paid up, averaged up, but your conviction was higher. So talk to us about that decision was it was it easy was it easy as like okay this is the math and then i'm just gonna load up here because that's my biggest i want to say like area of improvement that i'm trying to do is as a business executes be willing to pay up and buy in size um because if the business if the business is executing and the stock price is rising then you know it means that your thesis is is turning out correct and your confidence interval should then be a little bit tighter with a higher probability of success. But there's always that voice in the back of my head that's like, well, what if you're wrong, then you pay up and then you end up, you know, settling for a higher cost basis and a lower future return. So talk to us about what was going through your head at that time. I was I was lucky in this case because you know I made my initial investment on six times EV over EBITDA. It should be eight and they're going to grow EBITDA. Um, then I ended up getting taken out. And then at that point, it's, you know, it's the same company, but it becomes a different investment. My initial investment was getting taken out. And then I was making this, this new investment at 255. You can almost, you know, I call it one investment. You can almost think of this too. It was two completely different uh, you know, theses. Uh, so I was you know, lucky that way that I didn't have to, to struggle with that. But I'm, I'm the exact same way you are. I, I hate when I'm looking at my you know, account, I see a green 100% or something. And I want to buy more. I screw that all up, and then it goes down to a green seventy percent. Or it's a it's a hard thing to do. 
Yeah. Now, when you were originally going through this idea, what were some of the risks that you tried to predict basically doing a pre-mortem where if you were wrong in five years, what would your errors have looked like or what would the company had to have done for you to be wrong? So integrated was, it had a, you know, a really high uh, insider ownership and based on what the business was, they were, you know, they were the smarter guys at the table. Uh, Veronica Hirsch, I believe owned, owned some, some crazy high percentage of the company as did, uh, as did another director. So I thought if this is actually a good business, these guys are going to, these guys can take it away from me at far less than I think they probably should. Um, it wouldn't be, you know, a high percentage of their share uh, or their uh, net worth for them to take out minority shareholders at, you know, it was worth eight or 10. They could take it out at seven or, and then at the same time, you know, that's, that's a downside, but it still would have resulted in a positive return. There was also the chance, you know, any asset manager, especially one, you know, a tiny one like this, a few bad investments, then they can't raise their next fund. It, it was something that worried me. I had, I had a, a pretty good idea that these were good asset managers, but there's also a chance they're, they're loaning money to some small companies, some shady companies. So I thought, a few things go like that. They can't raise their next fund, which is part of what I was investing on. Yeah. So at the at its peak, what percent did you make this position in your portfolio? Uh, it was it was probably a ten percent position. Okay. And is that kind of the highest you'll go there? Uh, no. Once once we get onto Dream Unlimited, you'll you'll realize it goes much awesome. <laughs> All right, perfect. So let's 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 pivot now to an interesting kind of subtopic that 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 I want to discuss, which is your collection of Canadian outsider CEOs. And for those that don't know, um, you know this 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 outsider CEO mantra is um, is in regards to William Thorndike's book, The Outsiders, which obviously is a collection of some of the best capital allocators in the U.S. and for a while, you comprised a list of Canadian CEOs that would make that outsider's list. Um, so before we give into the or we get into the specific example, who were some names on the list and what businesses do they run and how did you how did you find these uh, exceptional CEOs? So so I'll start with, you know, the, the idea of, you know, outsiders from the book. Uh, Thorndike had a, a few you know, specific things they actually did. You know, they bought back stock. They used leverage. They made a you know a large large acquisition at some point. They were you know frugal, you know, only paying to one side of their office or something. Um, I think that's you know that definition's been stretched to just sort of any great CEOs, um, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. But when I was thinking of them, I originally was thinking of here's these uh, CEOs in Canada. No one's paying much attention to them. That are you know they're buying back stock they're using leverage they're doing things different than most are and i thought i guess i was bored one day i thought you know someone someone should write about these guys no one's paying attention to them and we have great business leaders here in canada so you know one of the first i think the first one i wrote about was jonathan goodman who runs a company called night therapeutics um he bought back a lot of stock in uh 2008 at his old company paladin labs he, he built his name on acquiring small drugs licenses and using them in Canada and being essentially the best operator a pharmaceutical company could, could have in Canada. 
And Canada is such a small market. They want to, they wouldn't necessarily care that they're getting the best deal. It's going to be a small revenue drug for them. They're focused on the U.S. He made a killing on that. I think he did 20% for 20 years and then started this new company. I thought he's, he's someone people should know about. So I yeah. wrote up a little bit about him. Not, there's not much out there. Um, you know, there's Ray Sahi who, who's uh, started out. Uh, he acquired Acklands Granger um, or split it up. Anyway, pivoted that company to essentially a real estate holding company. And now he run, I think Morgard owns $20 billion of real estate. He's, he runs an asset manager um, and he's, he's done the same thing. So he owns, I think he owns half his company. He buys back stock. He uses leverage. He, you know, structures it well. So only 10% is maturing at a year. Um, and then another one I brought up, uh, I, I tried it out on Twitter because, you know, I got, I got sick of writing so much on the blog and I wanted to see if people cared about Twitter threads more, which seemed to be yeah. off the rage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote about George Armorian, or Armoyan on Twitter, um, who he started out, you know, in real estate as a real estate developer. And he actually acquired a, you know, a port company through an activist battle. He, he didn't like how much, you know, fees they were charging his, one of his companies, so he decided he's going to, you know, buy their company from them, kick them out. Wow, <laughs> that's a badass it, move right there. <laughs> yeah. So, so he took took their company from them, and then he turned it into his, you know, public investment vehicle. So, so he was buying companies in 2003, 2004 um, that were busted income trusts. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if it was in the U.S., but Canada had a big, you know, income bust boom where any company could become an income trust. They wouldn't pay tax. They would pay out their earnings to you and you would pay tax. And a lot of these companies didn't have the stable cash flow to do that. So once they cut their, their distribution to investors, the stock would plunge because it was all, all retail investors only in it for the yield. Right. Would, would come in, buy these companies up for pennies on the dollars. He said, you're going to sell this company or we're going to improve it. And he, he made a, you know, a, a stupid amount of money doing that pre 2007, 2008. And he's continued doing similar deals at uh, the company's called Clark Inc. Um, he's, I think he's compounded at, you know, almost 13% since 2003. And he's paid out a bunch of special dividends that aren't included in that return. Investors would have done even better um, buying the company once he took it from, from the previous regime. That's interesting. Those income trust investments sound like what Floyd Odlum did way back. I think it was in the early 1930s or 40s. I wrote a piece about Odlum, um, you know, and the title was, you know, the greatest value investor you've never heard of because he was he was doing that exact same thing. He would buy these small, I guess, like income trusts, special situations, and then just liquidate them, then take the cash and then recycle it back into another trust. And he made a stupid amount of money. Um, just, just, just absolutely stupid. And it sounds like these Canadian outsiders, most of them, or maybe not most of them, but a good portion of them come from the real estate background. Is that just because there's, you know, obviously I'm a total uh, novice when it comes to Canadian markets. So I don't know the intricacies like someone obviously who lives there. Um, why, why does it seem like the real estate is kind of the hot uh, industry to come from for these CEOs? That's all Canada does is real estate. It's, oh, well, there you go. I have something new every day. <laughs> you see, uh, you see uh, charts, or I do anyway, looking at Canadian news, charts all the time that 
you know, real estate and real estate, you know, related things make up, you know, some silly portion of our GDP, you know, yeah. essentially the whole economy is trading houses to one back and forth. Um, so, and with, you know, high rates of immigration, a lot of these guys, you know, realized, you know, let's, let's build, you know, let's build real estate. People are yeah. coming to this country. There's, I think there's 38 million people in Canada. It's the second largest country in the world. There's lots of, lots of land. So these guys, it made sense to, you know, build, build up, someone would come eventually and rent it. So a right. lot of, a lot of, you know, Canadian names did, did come from a real estate background. There's, there's others, you know, there's of course, Mark Leonard at Constellation Software that, you know, probably everyone listening to this knows. Yeah. Um, but as far as, you know, out, outsiders in the, in the sense that, you know, using the Thorndike criteria of, you know, buying back stock using leverage, it, it's essentially perfect for a real estate guy to do it. So if you find a real yeah. estate outsider CEO, um, they're they're probably allocating capital well almost by accident. Awesome. Speaking of real estate, we can dive right into your two new favorite ideas, which is where we're going to spend the rest of the podcast, actually. Um, so there's there there's two of them. There's Dream Unlimited and Auto Canada. So. I do know a little bit about Dream Unlimited in the sense that I saw your tweet about it and looked it up on Ticker, and I said, wow, this thing is stupid cheap. There must be something crazy wrong with it. And I think I even asked that question in the in the Twitter thread. I think it was like you and Nick that were that, that were talking about it. <laughs> and and I think Nick said something like, you know, no one cares about what Tyler and I have to say about this name. It's just stupid cheap. <laughs> so let's let's start with Dream Unlimited. What is what does the company do? Walk us through how you found it and what your bull pitch is. So Dream Unlimited, um, it's you know all things real estate. So Dream actually you know was an acronym at one time for Dundee Real Estate Asset Management. Um, it's become Dream now. Uh, it's it, the main thing it was. It was born out of a land developer. Um, it's you know pivoted a little bit to, to owning income properties itself. And it's an asset manager. It, it manages uh, three public REITs and it's moving into uh, private, private real estate funds. And it's, you know, it was started, you know, 90s by uh, a, Canadian outs- a Canadian outsider named Michael Cooper here. Um, he, he got recruited by Ned Goodman, who's one of our, you know, really good, really big business leaders um, from Dundee Corporation. And so he was brought in to run the, the real estate of that company. They started Dundee REIT that owned, owned mostly office properties. It ended up splitting up the, the development portion of the business from the office portion. The REIT stayed public and Cooper took the uh, uh, developer and more speculative stuff private. It ended up getting spun off in, I think, 2013 uh, to the public markets again. And the whole thing was it owned, you know, lots of land in mostly Western Canada, which is, um, you know, big oil and gas. So hit 2014, stock did poorly essentially since then. Uh, despite some positive developments at the company. And you know, since then, it's been trading well under book, despite what, what I think, what I think and what Nick thinks should be happening. Yeah. And so 
like I said, this company's super cheap. I think I screened it, and it was two times earnings or something. And whenever I see a stock at two times earnings, I have two thoughts. One, why don't I own it? Like, it's so cheap, I might as well buy it. And then two, if it's at two times earnings, there's got to be a reason why. And so this is going to be a good time to discuss this idea of hidden assets that are off the balance sheet. And, you know, when I mean off the balance sheet, I don't mean, you know, in some like crazy Chinese third book or something like that, but just, you know, yeah, exactly. But just stuff that, you know, if you look in the footnotes or if you, you know, we're talking hard asset type things where you can get a valuation that's much higher than what the company's reporting on the books, whether they have to do it at historical cost or something like that. So walk us through the value prop and why there are a few uh, quote unquote hidden assets within this company. So the, so the main thing is um, it is trading at something like two times it's past 24 months earnings. Um, which is you know, a result of a big transaction last year, which, which we'll get to. Um, but the way I think of it, it's trading, the stock's something like $22 now, book value consolidated with one of its REITs is $31. Standalone book value is something like 29, 30. Um, so it's trading under book value despite you know, her, earning an, a high return on its equity. And despite growing that book value at I think 18% since it went public in, in 2014. So despite despite all this growth, you know the the price to book has gone from three times to 0.6 times. Um, and that that book value underreports things because you know due to uh, IFRS rules, uh, Dream has to report its land, which it owns 9,200 acres of land in Western Canada. It has to report okay. the cost and like you said, he started this in the 90s. He bought Saskatchewan land, lots of it, in, I think, 1994. So regardless of what you think of Saskatchewan, you, you probably don't think anything of Saskatchewan because never not, not many people do. Um, it doesn't come up much. But Saskatchewan land has a lot of value, and that value has gone up since the 1990s, regardless and of- And is that, is that just because of the timber value there? Again, total noob question, but what, what makes uh, the value rise? Um, so, so it's big, it's, I think it's the Viking oil play, which is got it. You know, okay. In Saskatchewan. So there's when, you know, oil and gas prices go down, Saskatchewan real estate value goes down. Um, yeah. they're big farmers up there. Uh, so, but you know, it's people, people want to live their regard. Like it's not, it's not, you know, Antarctica or anything. So, right. so he owns, I, at one time, it was much more, but he owns 9,200 acres of land in Saskatchewan and uh, Alberta, which same sort of ideas, oil and gas. Um, but that land is on the books at, I think, uh, so $485 million, 9,200 acres at $485 million. It's something like $56 or $56,000 an acre. Yeah. Which, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Um, and they've proved it. So Dream occasionally, you know, sells large plots of land. And they last year they sold one, um, 480 acres in Calgary, I believe. And they sold it at $175,000 an acre. Wow. So, and that, <laughs> the, the value is much higher. And just because of accounting rules, they can't, they can't report that. So, you know, there's a big difference there between what that land's worth what you could sell it all for and what they are allowed to tell you it's worth. 
So then I guess the natural question there, since you alluded that some of that Saskatchewan land is tied to, I guess, you know, the oil and gas and commodity business. Do you think that that high price for the land was just a function of the timing of the sale, given where commodity prices were maybe at the time? Or do you think that there's maybe some just greater intrinsic value where no matter what the commodity is doing, that land is worth more than what they're stating? Uh, yes. So, so that land value, I don't know. I don't follow the price of oil that closely. Um, right. That sale was done last year. So it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, peak oil bull market by any means. I was going to say oil was negative last year. So I might have to check myself on that. <laughs> it so was just roughly, imagine what it is in $60 oil. <laughs> it was, yeah. They sold that land roughly when oil was negative $40. So, well, damn. Okay. I take back what I just said then. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, uh, you know, the, they're not quite one, you know, one trick pony province. Like they're not. And yeah. I, you know, if anyone's from Calgary or, or Edmonton or Regina, they're going to you know, have my hide for saying anything like that. You know, yeah. there's, they're good provinces, you know, uh, some of the best skiing in the world is in Alberta. Um, okay. Some of the best agriculture in the world is in Saskatchewan. They're like, there's other reasons. <laughs> there are other reasons to live. <laughs> There's other reasons to live there than just buying shares in Dream Unlimited. I've only I've only been to Canada once in my life, I think. Well, technically twice, but once I went to a Montreal Canadiens uh, Washington Capitals hockey game in Montreal, and that was That'd fantastic. A- and yeah. um, Caps ended up winning that game. But Montreal is such a cool place, and Canada is a spot that I want to go back to. And there's a quite a few. Canadians on FinTwit, where you could probably get a decent meetup there, without a doubt. If yeah, if you're you know, I'd I'd have to drive in, um, but if you're ever you know ever in Toronto, we get a we get meeting going. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, because Toronto is another place I want to see a, a you know if 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 everything opens up a Maple Leafs Caps game, that would be that would be another one. Um, you know, I'm obviously a hockey fan here, but so yeah. now. We've kind of gotten the idea that Dream Unlimited is super cheap. They've got their asset values way larger than what's stated on the books. What's the catalyst going to be to you know for 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 shareholders to realize that value? Is it is it just you know hold it and eventually they're going to sell off the land, which over time will compensate investors for 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 owning the stock? What's 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 a catalyst there if there is any? So every once in a while, Dream you know by by nature of their business model, they'll do a large transaction that takes a asset that's valued at book value and they sell it for much more like that land sale. You know, I, I forget what the gain it was on that, but they made a lot of money taking an asset that they couldn't report as much money and they, they turn it into cash at a much higher value. Um, and then that reports, you know, all sort that goes through the income statement. Um, and they have, 9,200 acres of land that they can do that with. Um, they own a ski hill, Arapahoe Basin, um, that it's valued on the books at its cost and the cost of the improvements they've made. Something like 30, maybe $40 million on the books. It does maybe $12 million of EBITDA. You know, Vale's valued at 12 times EBITDA, probably more than that. Um, so, you know, value basin at 10, you know, you're talking 100 uh, $100 million. Right. The, the REITs they own, um, so Dream Office, uh, Dream Impact REIT, um, they're both trading well below their net asset value. 
but both were trading close close to it or above it in Dream Office's case pre-COVID. Um, people, you know, people have soured on the office uh, real estate sector. Um, if, you know, if that ever changes, that sentiment ever changes, and I, you know, I'm I'm differing uh, from most people, but I think I'm bullish on offices at the prices that we're offered them at right now, and. You know, the leasing data, I think, from Dream Office states that, you know, people are going to want to go to the office in Toronto. Well, if that that ever gets realized, um, Dream Office on the books right now is something like $8 a share. It's It could easily be double, I think. And, you know, at that point, you're talking an, an extra $8, not included in book value, not included in the market price. Um, and, you know, a few other assets like that. Dream Impact is something like you know, maybe two or three dollars, it could be double. And uh, Dream Unlimited is starting up a its private fund asset management business. So it's already manages those public REITs and yeah. earns something like twenty million dollars in fees from those every okay. year. Yeah, it's it's raised I think five hundred fifty to six hundred million dollars this year starting the private funds um, for a U.S. multifamily uh, portfolio. And Dream's getting into not not ESG per se, but they're trying to apply ESG principles, impact principles, they call it, um, yeah. to real estate. So, so what do you mean by that? So Dream Dream Impact, they've they've decided it's going to focus on affordable housing, um, okay. inclusive communities, and resource sustainability, resource efficiency. So. Yeah. So if that ever catches, you know, the ESG bid, that there's no reason that should be trading under NAV. It probably should trade higher than that. And yep. you know, you know, on that topic, I, I'm kind of skeptical. I, I think I've heard you talk about this as well. The the ESG mm-hmm. ESG phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm I'm kind of you know ambivalent on it because a lot of these ESG companies, if they have you know three women on the board it doesn't matter if they you know sell cigarettes to children in malaysia they're an esg company because because the they're women yeah and they've got yeah. that they they filled their quota or you know uh an oil and gas company as long as they install some solar solar panels on their office esg uh, a lot of the criteria you know it's not what i would pick as an esg company it's just it's a social status symbol there exactly um and you know not if you don't, you know, you don't invest in a tobacco company, but they don't, you know, if you buy that stock, none of that money gets to them because they're not raising capital. Um, yep. There's there's all sorts of ESG, you know, problems, I guess you could say. The, the you know, I, ideal factor that Dream Impact has is, you know, they're actually going out and doing things um, mm-hmm. as opposed to just, you know, avoiding something like the oil and gas sector. They're, right. you know, they're building developments in Toronto where 30% of the units uh, are affordable housing. So, you know, that, you know, that does provide, you know, actual value to society as opposed to, you know, not buying, not buying Suncor stock in your mutual fund. Um, yeah. You know, they're building, they have a, a community in Ottawa that, you know, is net zero carbon. I, it's, you know, it's very impressive. Uh, it's won awards and, you know, that's an example that they're, you know, by investing in this fund, 
you know, you can actually provide value versus, versus something else. And I think that Dream Unlimited could be, you know, a leader in that sort of, you know, fund subsector of if you want to, you know, look good to your investors, you can say, okay, we invested in Dream Unlimited's impact fund. You know, here, here's the reasons it's great. You know, it's it's trendy, but I don't necessarily think it's wrong. Yeah, well, and I, you know, you hit you hit an important point there where if we're going to use the quote-unquote ESG, I think it matters more if you're doing something proactive rather than, um, like you said, uh, basically saying we're not going to do this. So I think it's an easier pitch both to investors uh, that want to join saying, hey, you know, we're actively building, like you said, um, affordable housing in Toronto versus, hey, we're making a commitment to not do X, Y, Z. But the other, but the other thing I have just against ESG. I mean, I've got a bunch of stuff against ESG. But you know, like, what's to say that these companies that are building, you know, wind tunnel farms and all this stuff? I mean, the amount of fossil fuels that go into that alone, um, can you even say that that's an ESG company? Because their inputs are the fossil fuels, and you know, it's and then and then and then you've got the other thing where you know, Buffett will invest in tobacco because it kills people, but yet he invests in Coca-Cola, which has led to God knows how many obese people on this planet. So it's just, I don't know. I can, I can go on forever about ESG, but um, it's just, it's just confusing. And I think the way to do it is just to find something that you're passionate about on a social aspect that helps somebody and actually has positive unit economics. Um, I don't, I don't think it's good enough to just Again, right? If we're talking about business, that's different than charity. So in a business, the goal eventually is to delight customers and make money. If you're doing a charity, you don't really have to worry about the making money part. But as a business, you should pick something if you want to do ESG that's both positive and have positive run rate unit economics at some point. Absolutely. And and I think that's, you know, dream impact, you know, and choosing to do it within real estate is, you know, I guess I don't know whether it's, you know, novel or anything. Um, but they are still focused, like they still want to earn a 13 to 50% return on the investments they make, but they're just saying, you know, we're also going to, you know, we're not going to buy the cheapest indoor plumbing. We're going to, we're going to use water efficiently, or, you know, we're going to insulate these buildings better, you know, being in Toronto, they, you know, that's a huge cost to, um, heating them a large carbon sink, whatever. Um, so it's the main focus is still making money, but you know, in theory, the money you're going to give to these guys, event, you know, probably eventually they're going to raise capital. Um, so by buying stock, you're act, you know, actually contributing to, you know, furthering the human good or, or whatever right. you want. But, yeah. Now, if you look, like, let's say we're five years ahead now, 2026, and you look back and you were wrong on Dream Unlimited, why would you be wrong? Wrong? I, I don't understand. <laughs> Um, at 19% per year, I understand your confusion. <laughs> the, so in, in five years, it, it could be wrong. So, so one of the risks, um, would, you know, same thing I mentioned for integrate, there's a good, you know, not a good chance. I, I won't speak for him, but, you know, uh, Michael Cooper owns 40% of the company probably any day he wanted to, he could make a bid for, for the rest of it at, you know, net asset value, which is, you know, would be 50% above today's prices, but, you know, probably 50% below what I think it should be. And every year, if he's going to create 18% uh, or grow value by 
every year that I don't get to own that stock, that's that's a missed opportunity. Yeah. Um, same same sort of risk that uh, we were talking about. So Western Canada, as much as I think, you know, the va- the values low the or the value proposition is is pretty good at you know current prices, but it is you know an energy dependent area. So you know. I think oils are going to be around for a very long time. If it somehow miraculously isn't, I'm going to be wrong, but that's not, that's not going to be in five years, but yeah. that at the same time, you know, maybe they're building houses in Calgary and not as many people would buy them. The supply and demand can still be off, um, which would affect the investment. They own a lot of, uh, you know, they're building a lot of real estate in Toronto, uh, particularly condos, which is, uh, if you hear about Canada's hot housing market, Toronto and condos would be, you know, almost top of the uh, top of the heap. So if if we were due for a correction in those, you know, them trying to build, you know, something like seven thousand Toronto condos, that's not going to be great for them if if we have a bubble pop or anything. And right. then and then if I'm wrong about the office market, people don't want to you know come back to the office. They want to continue working you know the way we are right now. If no one ever comes to the market uh, or to the office, then you know that's going to be wrong. These these Toronto offices that they own, they're not going to be worth seven hundred and fifty dollars a square foot like you know they probably are today. They're going to be priced like they are in the market now at something like four hundred or five hundred or or lower. Got it. All right, let's move on to Auto Canada. Actually, wait before we move on, how big of a position is Dream Unlimited for you? Uh, recklessly big. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it at that. We'll let we'll let the listeners' mind just wander with their imagination. Um, let's 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 move on now to Auto Canada. So, kind of, we'll go we'll go through the same mill here. What does the company do? How did you find it? And how did you think about the thesis? Uh, so, Auto Canada is Canada's only publicly traded uh, auto dealership group. They own sixty six dealerships in Canada and Illinois. Uh, a result of a poor acquisition by previous management. Um, they own, you know, collision centers, they sell used cars, they sell, you know, finance, insurance, uh, service repairs. Um, the the way I found it is it used to be, you know, it used to be a high flying stock. So I think between 2011 and 2014, the stock went from $5 to $91. And, you know, those were you know, somewhat formative years for me investing. So I would watch, you know, business news, uh, market call in Canada and, you know, guests would be on, they would ask, you know, about auto Canada, they'd give their opinion when the stock was moving up to $91, everyone was always bullish. So the stock crashed after that. And, you know, this year it was something like $5 again, but simply because it was so popular then it's, it's a name that I've always sort of I've followed, I've been aware of, um, and then, so this past year, mainly a result of, see, I don't know how I came across it, but I saw the price. It was way too low or way lower than I would have guessed. Um, yeah. So I thought, you know, I better, I better look at what's going on here. Um, and it's, it's a, you know, big position in a few, few funds in Canada, value funds that I, I like to, you know, not clone, but I check their, check their holdings quite often. Um, Who are those, I, by the way, before, before we keep going? What's that, sir? I said, who are, who are those value funds that, that, that you like to clone? Just so I can kind of add to my list of. So, so Edgepoint, um, they're, they're one. And uh, actually Roland Kuyper, who's Clearwater Capital, 
Um, okay. Roman's probably Canada's best investor. Um, and if he's not, he's on the short list. So he, he actually you know, started a proxy battle at Auto Canada and was able to remove the previous management. And you know, that's, that's turned around the company. So him being involved was a big clue to, you know, something's going on here. Got it. Okay. So, so at the, you know, the, the way to think about it is it, uh, it's a decently valued company for, for what it is. Uh, depending on, you know, how you look at it, it's trading at something, you know, it's a teens, teens multiple of free cash flow. Um, and that's, you know, probably under earning because so management changed in 2018. They've had to re, you know, redo all the operations. Uh, they had to clean up after the previous management team. Um, so, you know, they've done a lot of wood chopping to, to get to a position where they're, you know, making money. And, you know, I think they finally, you know, finally got those turned around. They're going to start, you know, it used to be a, a roll up. Um, they had to quit doing that because they did such a poor job of it. Uh, and now this this new management team, now that they've cleaned up everything, they're right ready to start acquiring again. So, you know, they're going to be able to find dealerships at you know, pretty low pretty low valuations. They're going to be able to improve operations, and simply by doing that, investing at you know today's valuation, investors probably do well. And then at the same time, they're starting uh, they're acquiring more collision centers, um, which Boyd Income Fund. Uh, one of the compound compounder favorites in Canada, it's valued at way higher than uh, Auto Canada is. If they ever get the, you know those rate that multiple applied to their collision center business, yep, that's going to cause a little bit of re-rating. And they've started a digital retail initiative, um, so you can think of that like a Carvana, and okay. they could be you know they could be the the leader in Canada for selling used cars online. If, if they do that right, you know, sky's the limit for what that's worth. I like, I'm talking about auto Canada trading on that, uh, multiples of free cash flow. you know, Carvana is a multiple of sales. So, so if they, right. Get that right. That's, that could be a huge, huge catalyst. I mean, well, even, even, even Boyd, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at them now. So the ticker just, just so I'm right is BYD. Correct. And it's, I think, it's at like ninety-five times current earnings. So, if Auto Canada gets even anywhere near that, I mean, that's, I mean, obviously, even at twenty-five, thirty times run rate earnings, Auto exactly. Canada is still it, still cheaper it's than. It's going to be a small Boyd. part of their business, but you know, yep. the 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 main thing is they're they're getting valued like they sell new cars at you know three percent margins or whatever they do. They've pivoted yeah. to you know now they're doing you know, collision centers at, you know, 20% or 30% margins. Um, And, you know, they're doing parts and service, which if you've taken your car to, you know, a dealership to get your oil changed, I don't know what the margin on is that it's, it's, you know, it's insane. So they're transitioned that to, you know, big one-time sales at low margins to a lot more recurring sales at high margins. And, you know, simply if people catch on to that, which I don't think they are now. I certainly wasn't before this summer. Um, they're going to see that you know we've been valuing this business too cheap. Hmm. Cool. Now, how did you find this idea? Uh, I I, I want to say it was Nick in uh, the summary. I know he's he follows it as well. Um, 
and you know me and him bounce off ideas off each other i i'm pretty sure it probably came up in one of our conversations i yeah, looked I need- <laughs> it's it's I need- six dollars and and yeah. it should, i thought it would have been 20 so let's let's take a look and see what's what's going on yeah i mean shoot you found it at six it's at 32 right now so Kudos, kudos to you and Nick on that one. Anytime I find a Canadian idea, by the way, I just text or I, I DM Nick. I'm like, yo, have you heard of this? <laughs> and if he says like, yeah, you know, it's pretty decent business or no, I have. And I'm like, all right, cool. At least I've, at least I've got a starting point. Um, he'll start, so, he'll start you too. He'll, he'll say no, quit, quit that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is, which is the best. So again, what we did with Dream Unlimited, if we fast forward to 2026, we're five years out and Auto Canada just for whatever reason doesn't work. Uh, why Why would that be the case? Uh, the main one would be, you know, selling cars. It's, you know, it's cyclical. If by chance the, you know, a lot of my valuation on this is dependent on, you know, steady state economy, let's say. Uh, if If we go through a downturn and people aren't buying cars, you know, it, it won't matter too much that uh, Auto Canada has pivoted to, to more recurring and less counter or less less cyclical sales. They're going right. to get hurt. Um, and then, you know, they got, you know, they got a lot of exposure to Western Canada as well. Uh, it used to be much more. That's why it crashed so hard in, in 2014. Uh, right now, it's about 30% of, of the business. Something, something oil and gas related that could hurt it. And then you know they're they're investing in this digital retail business that I think you know could be could be very big, if if Carvana wants to come in and start their you know start their vending machines and they don't care if they're losing five hundred dollars on every car, and Auto Canada insists on making five hundred dollars, they're gonna they're gonna lose a lot of share. Um, and there's a few few small startups in Canada trying to do the same thing. They're they're regional at this point. Canada's Canada's so you know it's. Uh, it's a very undense population, so it's tough to do to do what you're doing in the states with Carvana. Um, so there's you know Clutch, it's called. They're selling okay. cars in Toronto and Vancouver, I believe. If they expand nationwide, you know they get a backer uh, or you know acquired, and they win, that's a that's going to be a big blow. I don't I don't think it's devastating. Um, and the management team has been so impressive so far that I don't think, I honestly don't think it can go that wrong other than economic conditions outside of, outside of their control. Have you positioned Auto Canada at a reckless amount as well? It would be something like 10%. So I don't know. If okay, you call so, it, I don't. So that's, that's, that, that's pretty conservative compared to Dream Unlimited. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I remember, I remember when, 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 when we were talking about Dream Unlimited and you were like, you know, hey, it's a huge portion of my portfolio. I was like, if it's this much of his portfolio, it's got to be worth digging into. Because I had the same thing with um, another, another guy I had on the podcast, Will, and he had a one-stock portfolio and it was all ANO, which for those that don't know, it's Advanced Nanotech Limited. And it's like some sunscreen type company that they make this, you know, special chemical for it. And I'm like, dude, if it's your entire portfolio, it is worth me looking into. Like it just, it just is, yeah. um, you know, any, yeah. anybody with that level of conviction, it's like, you have to give them the respect of actually looking at that name. Absolutely. No. Yeah. No matter, no matter who they are, if you're, you know, if you're risking your, your future like that for, for a company, you know, see, see what they're thinking about, see what they're, see what they're thinking. Yeah, because I mean, if they're wrong, they're screwed. Totally. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh man. But I think Will also has some I think he I think he's bullish on Tesla. So up until the last couple couple weeks, he's been he's been doing all right. Um let's let's move now to some names that you won't buy and maybe some ideas that are on your watch list and kind of how you cull and cultivate that watch list. So what are what are what are some names, industries, types of businesses that you wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole and why? I I don't think there's there's anything I won't touch. There's a lot of a lot of industries where, you know, I don't necessarily understand them that well. And I won't avoid them because of that. I think one of the best things as you know you can do as an investor is instead of saying this is outside my circle of confidence, you know, try and expand your circle a little bit, you know, try and learn about a new business, you know, a new industry. Um, but it it takes a lot for me to invest in, say, oil and gas takes a lot for me, you know, mining, there's a lot of software that I don't understand particularly well, um, but I won't avoid any of them. And the, the only things I'll avoid are some of these, these SPACs who are saying we're, we have zero revenue today. We should be valued at, you know, 30 times revenue in 2025 and revenue. We'll be doing up. 2 billion in revenue by then. Yeah. Those are, those are those pitches where you're talking 2025. Those, are, those are tough to swallow. Yeah, I think it's funny because I last I think it was last week I I, I sent out a sent out a uh, you know an equity note to our collective members about three three specs at least that I'm that I'm interested in and the one thing I found is that all three of them you know they had some solid revenue and even you know EBIT EBITDA profitability going into it so if that's the case then the twenty three. 20, 2023 through 2025 figures don't necessarily scare me. Obviously, you have to take them with a grain of salt. But what really blows my mind is these companies that have no revenue, like you said, and then they just assume that this growth is going to go exponential. And then like the best is always Chamath's one-pagers about his newest SPACs, where he just talks like, you know, oh, this is this company's here, this company's doing this. And then you go down and his valuation section is like two bullets. And it's like EV to sales, 2025 estimate, two times. And I'm like, where, where, where are you getting that? How are you getting that? Like what number, like how does that figure come into your brain? It just blows my mind. I, I love some of these. I've, I've seen enough decks that say valued conservatively by comparing, you know, <laughs> their multiple to, to Disney's today, what they're going to do or what they think they're going to do in 2025. It's, yeah. it's, <laughs> It, I, I get a chuckle every time. I think. I mean, the best one I saw wasn't even a spec. It was a shipping company uh, that their like initial slide deck. First off, their their like first two slide decks were quotes from Albert Einstein, and like the third one after that, they were valuing their shipping company. And they were like, you know, this is what Amazon does. This is what Airbnb does, and they were giving themselves a valuation comparable to those two companies. I'm just like, how in the world does this pass any investor relations team or anything like that? I'm, I'm sure there are exceptions to the rule, but I think, you know, you lead off your, your investor presentation with, with quotes, anybody's quotes, you know, particularly Warren Buffett quotes. That's a, that's a hard pass. You know, it's actually funny you mentioned that though, because I think back to, you mentioned you mentioned Vale earlier. So there's this conference in Vale. It's the Value X um, Vale conference that Vitaly Katzelnelson Katzelnelson does, um, and it's basically a room full of you know 40 fund managers. And I pitched a stock two years ago. And mind you, this is a room full of people that I have admired and just thought the world of. And 
you know, consider these people my mentors. So I'm up there pitching to these guys. And my first slide of this of this presentation, it was a SPAC. It was an oil and gas SPAC. It lost like 90% after I pitched it. But after after the title deck or after after the title slide, the first slide after was that quote from Charlie Munger where it said, you know, you'll basically do the return of a business. So if, so if a business generates 20%, it's going to be hard for you not to generate 20% over time. And <laughs> so I'm just sitting there thinking like, I just totally dogged on people using quotes like that. But then I'm like, you know what, Brandon, you did the exact same thing two years ago. <laughs> you, you've come I, along. I even had a picture of a cartoon Charlie Munger. And I was like, all right, guys, so let's, let's dig in. <laughs> if, if you still have that presentation, I would love to see it. I'll send it to you. I just got to dig it out of the trash can. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I digress. Um, what are what are some names on your watch list that you're currently uh, digging into or just waiting to find time to to read about? So, in in addition to uh, Dream Unlimited, uh, you know, I think one of my best ideas is is probably land. Um, for whatever reason, Canadian land developers are are valued. It's it's dumb. Um, so there's, there's three other developers in Canada, uh, Melcor, um, Genesis Development Corp, and there's a company, uh, it's Club Link. They own a bunch of golf courses, but it's one of Ray Sahi's companies. Essentially, he bought it for the land underneath these golf courses. So he owned, okay. like, all those companies own tremendous amounts of land. They're valued well under book, and the same thing as Dream, all their land is worth much more than the balance sheet says. Right. They're all, they're all valued... I like, I like dream better for, for some of their assets and, you know, the, the leader there, but they're all valued at least interestingly, if not, you know, attractively, um, you know, so I mentioned, uh, Clark a while ago, George Armoyan's company, it's, it's trading well under book value and it has, you know, an interesting catalyst where it's very clear to me that he's taking that company private soon. He's bought back. You know, gobs of shares recently. Um, he did a you know a thousand to one stock split and then reverse stock split to get rid of small shareholders. Wow. He's buying he's buying tons of stock and then he's buying back tons of stock and then doing these things to get rid of the little guys. Um, you know that company's going to be private sometime soon. If he pays you you know a good amount for your shares, then you're going to do pretty well on an investment today. One um, X is another uh, company, another asset, asset manager in Canada, again, trading below book, book value and their asset management company isn't at all uh, included in their book value. So that's all value on top of a book value that they're trading below. Right. And, and then there's a company, uh, a transportation company, it's called TFI International. Uh, they just did a huge acquisition in the US uh, which which is going to get a lot of names on the company. I think they they just did a cross listing, so they're now traded on the U.S. exchanges as well. I was about to say I just I just found them. Uh, TFI International's on the uh, New York Stock Exchange now. Yeah, so so it's it's run by a Canadian outsider CEO, uh, Elaine Bedard, and it's trading I think somewhere around ten times uh, EBITDA, but this acquisition they bought UPS's uh, less or UPS's freight uh, division it was roughly break even when they bought it it's a it's a huge acquisition and TFI has built their name on acquiring companies and then improving the operating ratio 
if they're able to improve that to say 10% margins, like they think they're right. going to, yep. earnings, earnings go up a ton. And, you know, even, even if it doesn't, it's a, it's trading attractive enough that, you know, investors are going to be doing very well and they're invested with, you know, a great CEO that not, not enough people know. I feel like talking to you has been a breath of fresh air compared to the types of conversations you have with some high growth momentum investors where it's all this, you know, high growth, high EV to sales. And yet here you are talking about discount to book and trading at attractive multiples of EBITDA. It's uh, almost unheard of today. I feel like anybody, any 15 year old Robinhood trader is going to, going to have to look up a uh, at least, at least look up some, some, some of these phrases like profitability and book value. I, I feel like a dinosaur talking about book value a lot of the times. And when I, when I was making, you know, trying to come up with, you know, some stocks on my watch list, I, said, I can't just do all these stocks trading below net asset value. I got to talk about something else. Yeah. That's where you got to throw in the uh, docebo and uh, the die. Die in Durham. Yep. Yep. Die in Durham's on my watch list, Tyler. I've got it. But again, like just hearing you talk about these names that are just so fundamentally value-based, um, it is it is quite refreshing. And honestly, after spending you know, a little bit over an hour talking with you, I can I can understand why your returns have been the way they have been. Because you know, it's not like you're doing anything crazy. It's not like you're doing anything original in the sense that you're just trying to find businesses that are trading at attractive multiples with real catalysts and actual values um, attached to those businesses and to those shares that aren't recognized in the stock price. I mean, it, it is it is that simple. And you've been able to return, like I said, 19.9% per annum over the last five years. Yeah. So yeah, pretty well, you know, my, my whole philosophy probably was down to, you know, a reasonably priced business based on whatever you want to do that, you know, free cash flow asset value, whatever. And, yeah. you know, try and invest with a real smart guy, you know, or, or woman at the top, um, invest with, you know, smart people at attractive valuations. And it's really tough to go wrong. It, you know, I could throw in a Charlie Munger quote there, but. Please don't ruin it. I've already done that. <laughs> we got it. We got to save her Charlie's name, but um, let's, let's, let's wrap up here. I mean, look, it's almost been an hour and a half and I feel like it's been 10 minutes. So I do have to get up to Toronto at some point. We can, we can grab, we can grab a bite to eat um, and, and, and continue this conversation. But where can people go to find out more about you? I know you've got Twitter, right? And your website. I want people to find you on your website because you are active on there and you publish ideas all the time. Yeah. So my Twitter handle, uh, CDN value stocks, uh, the website's Canadian value stocks.com. I, you know, try, try to write there when I can. And uh, my emails up there, uh, my, you know, my DMS are open on Twitter. I'm, I'm, I love talking about this stuff. I could do this all day. So I'm, I'm happy to hear from anyone interested in Canadian stocks. And then I've got a question from Nick. So I, I DM'd him and I said, Hey, I'm getting Tyler on the podcast. What do you want me to ask him? And he said, ask Tyler, who are some of his biggest influences? Huh, so you know, that's a good question. So in addition to the, you know, the regular guys that, you know, everyone says, they all say Buffett Munger, um, probably reading, uh, you can be a stock market genius, you know, pretty early on was, you know, was a big thing for me. It got me started on, you know, return on invested capital earlier than I otherwise would have been. Um, hmm. 
there's you can find Joel Greenblatt's you know lecture notes on on the internet, and you could read you know whatever it is, fifteen hundred pages of you know his lecture transcripts. That you know that's always a tab open on my computer. Um, so so in addition to that, uh, yeah, that's that's a good question, Nick. I, I would say, in addition to the regular guys, uh, Joel Greenblatt's a regular guy too, but but he'd be the big one. Got it. And then last question that I ask everybody, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? And you can't say green black because you've already given him away in the other answer. Uh, Ernest Shackleton. So, okay. Who is that? I'm again, novice here. So who is, who is Ernest Shackleton? So he, uh, he tried to lead an expedition across Antarctica in or to the South pole on foot uh, in 1915, I believe. And his boat got, frozen in pack ice so they floated around on pack ice for i think a year and then got you know they managed to sail sail to a you know a little island no one would ever go to stayed there for a year um just just the things that he did to you know and so i forget how many guys were on this uh trip but none of them died in staying two years in you know sub-freezing temperatures with no food you know they they had to, you know, take to the boats, you know, they would get to an island, immediately, you know, eat, and then sail off to, you know, try to find help. Um, I think, you know, it's one of the most fascinating stories I've heard. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, there's a great book called Endurance by Alfred Lansing. And, you know, I just think, the, you know, the stories he would tell. Yeah. And that story is how I picture Canadians getting to work in the winter. <laughs> It is. So, so you know, we're lucky to have our skates with us usually. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> a lot of times, you know, we're, we're lucky that it's, you know, plowed a little bit, but yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not too different what you're from what you're picturing. Yeah. I mean, I went to school in upstate New York for a couple of years. And so we had some of that lake effect snow, but nothing like what Canada experiences. <laughs> yeah. If, uh, Anytime you're you're buying a house where Dream Unlimited's building in Saskatchewan or Alberta, um, <laughs> those 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 people know winter. Yeah. Well, Tyler, this has been awesome, and I'm glad that uh, I was able to annoy you enough to come on the show. I know I know it was something that you were a little bit apprehensive to do, but I'm I'm so glad that you did it because uh, those, those listening are going to learn so much. And again, you have you have one of the best track records that I've seen over the last five years, and it's and it's a track record that needs to be, um, you know, celebrated more. Again, this is a lonely game investing. And so if we can kind of highlight some of the achievements by, by, by some of the participants on here, um, you know, by all means that, that is the goal. So, um, you are serially underfollowed on Twitter and I hope that this changes that needle a little bit and I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. I hope I gave your listeners something to, to think about. <laughs>